Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that Right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the New Book Network podcast. I'm Deidre Tyler. Today, we'll be talking with M.K. Beecham, Associate Professor of History at Rogers State University and author of Instruments of Empire, Colonial Elites, and U.S. Governance in Early National Louisiana, 1803 to 1815. How are you doing today, Professor? I'm well. How are you? Great. Can you start by telling us a little about yourself and how you became interested in this project? Sure. Yeah, I'm uh, from Lubbock, Texas originally and uh, went to the University of Dallas for my BA. And then I was at Texas A&M doing a master's degree. And my master's thesis was on uh, Aaron Burr conspiracy stuff and I don't know, masters, uh, having directed a couple master's theses, I mean, they, they either go one or two ways, but one, one way is they're, they're really good, and that becomes sort of a chapter or the stepping stone for the, the dissertation later or the book, or they go really badly, and mine was more the second. Uh, but, you know, sort of taught you what not to do, but one of the things my advisor told me is, was like, look, there's a lot of stuff about major figures in Louisiana here, and there's probably more to do on that. Uh, so... That was sort of my entree into Louisiana, and I had family in New Orleans, so you'd visit, and you were always fascinated by it. So, uh, and, you know, this was, I don't know, 2002, 2003, uh, starting to work on that, and then finished the dissertation in 2009, and very different, and that, you know, sort of is comparing different regions in Louisiana, uh, rather than sort of the, the format it has now, and uh, then, you know, I'd, I'd send it off to uh, individuals to read and they'd say, well, you know, this is interesting, but you, you probably need to put more about how this is not just Louisiana history, that this is American history, that, you know, this is very similar to stuff that's happening elsewhere. And, uh, you know, when I, I put that in the introduction and then send it off to the press, uh, not surprisingly, it came back and they, they'd say, well, OK, look, you, you need to <laughs> do more on that. So you know, back to the drawing board. And then finally, you know, 10 years later, uh, you know, I, I, I you know, sent it back in and, and they were willing to publish. It takes me a long time to do anything, but uh, it finally got done. Now, you started the book talking about James Workman. Tell us a story about him and how he played a role in understanding Louisiana. Yeah, so Workman's interesting. He's, you know, he's a British immigrant to the United States, uh, and uh, he's a federalist. He's, he's not a Republican. He's not someone that's sort of a, a natural uh, fit for getting patronage in Louisiana. When Jefferson comes in in 1801, you know, they're, they're going to steer patronage to, to members of that party. But, you know, Workman was a, a big advocate of the U.S. takeover uh, of Louisiana, and he, he wrote a play uh, that sort of, you know, uh, in very kind of over-the-top fiction, sort of demonstrated sort of what, what he saw as the evils of, of Spanish colonialism as opposed to, uh, you know, sort of the, the more uh, beneficent uh, um, attributes of, of the United States. Uh, and, you know, then got a, a position as a judge. And, uh, you know, Workman then uh, found himself at odds uh, during the Burr conspiracy when, when General James Wilkinson came in and started to make uh, arrests, uh, you know, extra legal arrests in Workman's view, 
Uh, Workman started to let these guys out, and Workman ended up getting arrested himself and eventually, you know, losing his judgeship over it. So, and Workman's sort of, you know, a, a type, and that there, there's a lot of individuals like that from Britain, from France, from the Caribbean coming in that get appointments that have sort of this ability to, to get entree uh, based on that, that, that sometimes have higher trust even than sort of local Creoles who, who might, uh, you know, be suspect in, in ways that sort of, you know, Frenchmen from elsewhere or, or, or British, you know, or former British subjects like workmen were not. Now, explain to the audience the complex racial mixture of Louisiana that makes it really interesting to study. Yeah, so it's... Uh, it's inordinately complex uh, and sometimes uh, too much so in that you, you sometimes create these sort of discrete categories in your mind that don't necessarily uh, work on the ground. Or uh, So you're, you're talking about Anglo-Americans coming in who are used to a, a very rigid racial kind of categorization of white free black slave in general, right? To be sure there's small free black populations in the South and places like Charleston, but not on the same level they're going to find in New Orleans. So when Americans come into New Orleans, they're encountering uh, a much more significant, large free black population uh, that, and that too is, is kind of a, a catch-all term, right? You're sometimes talking about people that are both African-American and indigenous or triracial, you know, and so uh, that's something that often Anglo-Americans from the rest of the South coming in struggle with or have a, a hard time uh, getting their heads around. Uh, you're also talking about this long period under the Spanish that uh, had allowed for uh, freedoms to take place, far more so than the French, right? The, the Code Noir, the, the French was never really enforced in the way it was supposed to be in Louisiana. So you had a far more, for lack of a better word, sort of liberal racial regime under the Spanish than you had under the French. And, uh, you know, that led to the growth of this free black population. And you have these, um, you know, under, well, during the American Revolution, when Galvez is the, the Spanish governor, uh, uh, you have uh, free black uh, militia units, right? A, a unit of, of, of Pardos and a unit of Marinos. So, uh, you know, there, there's uh, a lot of, uh, you know, distinctions being made by the Spanish that get obscured when the Americans come in. It's also interesting that it's, you don't want to read this as just Anglo-American imposition of their racial ideology in the sense that there's a lot of white Creoles, uh, white elites in Louisiana, uh, you know, French speakers that were very unhappy with the way uh, the Spanish uh, had allowed this to take place. Uh, they want more access to slaves. Uh, they're not particularly comfortable uh, with those uh, free black militia units uh, or companies. So, uh, you know, th this sometimes is, is read as sort of Anglo-American imposition of their racial ideology. And, and there's, a, there's an element of truth to that, but there's also a lot of white elite Creoles pushing for this too, right? In some ways, this is one of the ways in which the United States is getting support. Uh, so when you see something like, uh, you know, a colonial legislature that has a lot of French speakers in it in 1806 passing the Black Code, you know, that's not you know on high from Washington, right? In some ways, I mean, I don't want to say that's bottom up because it's not, you know, but it's middle up or it's, you know, sort of elite or local elite up, you know, forming something like that that's, you know, then restricting, uh, you know, not just the uh, the abilities or the uh, freedoms of, of slaves, but it's, it's restricting, you know, the, the growth of the free uh, black population in Louisiana. Now, define Creole for the audience. Yeah, this is, uh, <laughs> you would ask me about this. This is, uh, 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 yeah, this is, this is a complex question. And on the one hand, in sort of a, a Spanish Atlantic or Spanish imperial context, Creole just meant uh, Spaniards born in the New World, 
right? So to distinguish them from peninsulares, Spaniards coming in from abroad. So uh, it's a, a term that has to do with pedigree, right? Saying that these are Spaniards or Europeans born in the new world. That's what it meant initially. Uh, now, this is a big question, too, because uh, you don't exactly have pseudoscientific kind of racial categories, really, you know, in a, or when those come in, right? Is that the 18th century? Is it the 17th century? Uh, you know, it, it doesn't really seem like it's the 16th century when you're talking about, you know, New Spain. So, uh, but at first, this has to do with pedigree, but increasingly, it becomes a kind of racial category. Now, and that's why in some ways it's not, uh, it's a confusing term because it's changing in history consistently. So when I'm using it, that's generally how I'm I'm using it, right? I'm using it as as locals in Louisiana born. Now, uh, over time in Louisiana, it, it comes to mean basically French speakers, right? I mean, you know, this in white and black. Uh, And this too is a a complex question because you sometimes have members of the African-American community do not like people that use that term because they they feel like that's, you know, uh, failing to identify blackness or you're not identifying with blackness. You sometimes have racial politics the other way, Creoles that don't want uh, to be called that because they fear it. it has a racial connotation that it may or may not. So it very much depends on who's saying it who's writing it, what time they're writing it in, and to, to get at what that means. Uh, but, you know, I think certainly by the 20th century in Louisiana, it can just mean French speakers, um, white, black, uh, indigenous. But you, you got to be careful with that. For my period, or when you're talking about early national Louisiana, it's not always that useful a term in that, the Creole identity or that Creole identity that becomes just French speakers uh, needs Americanization because there's no identity before that in terms of a broader Creole identity in Louisiana, Louisiana's colonial period, or at least that's Joseph Tregel thought that, right? There's this book, uh, Creole New Orleans, that the Tregel had an essay in where he talks about, you know, it's not really all that important a category in the colonial era because, Identity is positive in the sense that, you know, you're you and I'm me because we're, you know, A, B, C, D, and we've all got all these special categories, but identity is also negative. It's by what you're not. So it's not until the Americans come in that you start to see this broader Creole category of all French speakers, again, revolving around language uh, and the importance of of, of that for this process of community formation or sort of imagined communities, right, to, to borrow Benedict Anderson's term. So it's... It's a really complex term that, you know, you got to think about, well, wait, who's saying it? What do they mean by that? When I'm using it, I'm usually meaning that to mean locals born in Louisiana uh, and generally, you know, uh, white Creoles. And if it's something else, I, I, you know, I identify it there. But, you know, for that early territorial period, I'm not sure there's really a Creole identity in the way there comes to be one later. And that you're talking about, you know, the Acadians uh, in, in Louisiana that do not identify as Creole. I, I was listening to your your podcast uh, I don't know, last week where they're talking about how well, no Cajuns and Creoles would sometimes get offended in the 20th century if you referred to one or the other that way. Right? I mean, so you've got this Acadian population. Uh, you've got uh, you know what what later came to be called the foreign French, but you've got Frenchmen coming in from France. Uh, they're not really Creoles in the sense that they're not locals uh, and they don't identify as locals and Anglo-Americans don't identify them as locals or see them as locals. Uh, you've got Frenchmen who sometimes spent time on the East coast of the United States and then immigrate to Louisiana. Uh, you've got Acadians likewise who spent time in other States or in the Caribbean. Uh, you've got Frenchmen coming in uh, or French speakers coming in from, you know, Saint-Domingue or Haiti, or they, they get exiled to Cuba. They're coming in from there. Uh, and, those people, you know, all have different politics too, right? Some of them might be French Republicans. Some of them might be Bonapartists. Some of them might be Royalists. So, you know, when you're looking at sort of that French-speaking community in, say, 1805 and saying, well, this is all a Creole population, well, you know, probably not. And it's really interesting because uh, the incoming governor, Governor Claiborne, 
he doesn't usually use the word Creole. He usually will use the word ancient inhabitants or former inhabitants to talk about you know people there before the Americans came in, right? To talk about French and Spanish speakers, but maybe not too, right? At some points, Claiborne might be referring to Anglo-Americans already in Louisiana, but it's been there for 10, 20, 30 years. So this is one of these questions too. So when you, you talk about, well, who's a local and who's not, well, you know, say some, you know, an Irishman who'd been in New Orleans since 1780 and, it, you know, married into the local population because you've got a lot of exogamous marriages taking place between these populations consistently. You know, is he a local? Is he not? You know, as you probably wouldn't identify, you, you probably wouldn't identify him as a Creole, but you certainly wouldn't identify him as one of these Americans coming in 25 years later either. So, you know, it's really hard to just typecast these people into groups. And when you, I get to that last chapter and looking at appointments, that's a big question. Was, well, wait, is this guy a Creole? Is he not a Creole? Is he local? Is he not? I mean, it, it, it's uh, they, they don't you know fit into sort of a, a Venn diagram the way you want them to often in terms of, you know, oh, well, this is their type or this is their, you know, their, their pedigree. Now, many times it's good to uh, listen and uh understand what outsiders are saying about an area. You talked about Darby and how he observed Louisiana. Tell us about that. Yeah, and and I think that's one of the, you know, sort of natural historians or geographers and and people like Darby uh, offer, uh, and and likewise uh, C.C. Robin, they offer a... uh, a more honest view. I mean, I sometimes, yeah, I, I think there, you're right. that There's a lot to be said for the, the fresh eyes or the outsider coming in because that's someone who doesn't have a stake in any of this necessarily, right? They, you know, they, they might have their own biases, of course, but, you know, their living probably doesn't depend on, you know, how they want to see, uh, you know, the, the transition from Spain to France to the United States. Uh, and, you know, individuals like Darby give you these kind of, uh, I don't know, sort of view from Mars kind of perspective that, that I really uh, appreciate. And again, Robin, likewise, and others, I, I think there's a lot of use to be made from these kind of travelers or journalers uh, coming through. Uh, and, you know, the fresh eyes, too. I mean, I think that that's always worthwhile and that, uh, I mean, I love Louisiana history, but it, it sometimes can get very inside baseball. And that's sort of one of the things that's trying to, by making the comparisons, bring out, well, look, Louisiana is unique. Of course it is in all sorts of ways. But when you talk about these issues of empire or colonialism or, you know, this process of uh, American settlement and American governance, no, it, it looks like a lot of other places. And, you know, this allows for these kind of comparison and contrast uh, statements when you you sort of get it out of just seeing it in this Louisiana silo. And again, I'm from Texas. I'm well aware, you know, Texans have their own little silo when they talk about their history, too. But you know, I, I think that's one of the ways, you know, that outside perspective really helps. Now, describe the difference of the Louisiana frontier that makes it an anti-adversarial frontier. You sometimes uh, talking about American frontiers or American settlement, uh, you tend to conjure up uh, this issue of um, Native Americans and settlers coming in and trying to eliminate populations or assimilate populations. Uh, But uh, you've also got frontiers uh, with other nations. Uh, And, you know, this is sort of one of these problems in, uh, again, it always comes down to the wording, right? I mean, Americans, when Americans talk about frontier, they're often talking about it as process, right? Sort of a process of settlement and Americanization and that the frontier is moving. But, you know, frontier in, in Europe often just meant the border, right? The border between two of these nations. So uh, the United States, when it gains Louisiana, then is inheriting this border with Spain, where you don't have clear borders between them. You also don't have large settlement. I mean, you've got Natchitoches uh, in northwest Louisiana, but you don't have a lot of large population centers in Western Louisiana. Spain, likewise, doesn't have a lot of large population centers in East Texas. So 
you've got a border that's not clearly defined, and uh, both are uh, trying to establish you know, their legitimacy in that region without, you know, real settlements there. So they're both competing with uh, one another for influence among Native Americans in that region, trying to chart the region and all the rest. So, uh, you know, so what you have in Louisiana is sort of this unique situation where, you know, you're worried about, you know, uh, a fellow nation state actor in Spain. Uh, but you're also worried about, you know, sort of the, the asymmetrical threat of Native Americans in that region. Uh, so, and this creates a, a real problem. I mean, you, you've got situations where sometimes Spanish soldiers cross over that boundary. Uh, you've got situations where, you know, Spanish soldiers are sometimes taking stuff from uh, American uh, citizens now, right? I mean, often French speakers in Western Louisiana that, you know, now might be harassed by those uh, Spanish soldiers. Uh, and because neither side can really exercise authority in this sort of this no man's land, even though they're both claiming it, uh, you've got banded groups, native groups operating there, uh, relatively free to engage in raids and crimes and the like as well. Uh, You've also got Spain trying to encourage people to leave uh, American Louisiana uh, and settle uh, in Spanish Texas. Um, So you've got that to the West You've also got Spain to the east and that they're continuing to hold on to Baton Rouge and, you know, what Louisiana are called the West Florida parishes until you have an American or Anglo-American revolt there in 1810. So you've got a a Spanish adversarial threat from both the east and the west. And it's I mean, there's sort of an assumption often in Washington and in Congress that Spain's a declining power and that eventually this is all going to belong to the United States. And you can certainly pick up that sentiment, but at the same time, you've often got uh, local officials in Louisiana and Mississippi very worried about Spanish machinations uh, in that back country. So, you know, you sometimes have this, you know, what seems seems like a, a bipolar approach, right? That Americans are not worried about Spain, but, you know, locals on the ground are often very worried uh, about uh, Spanish intrigue. And you've got a lot of Louisianans who'd just been under Spanish rule. Uh, some of them are still in contact, uh, you know, uh, with Spanish authorities. So, and this is you know, one of these things that also raises American fears, especially before, say, the, the failure of the Burr conspiracy, and that they're very worried that those French-speaking Louisianans are not local, that if Spain did invade, that this is potentially a fifth column. Now, most of this turned out not to be the case, but that, that doesn't mean those, those, those fears were just sort of absurd. I mean, we, we do have cases of, of Louisiana still communicating with Spanish officials. Tell us about the racial order and the politics of that time period. Yeah, so you're talking about a, uh, a U.S. government that is coming in that because of some of these worries about local uh, loyalty, uh, white French speaking loyalty, uh, there's maybe a brief moment of opportunity for free persons of color in Louisiana. Uh, They have these free companies uh, that the Spanish had allowed and When the Americans come in, uh, they are very quick to, you know, put the eagle, you know, sort of symbol in their hats and they write a petition to Claiborne and the American government saying they want these uh, free persons of color units to continue to exist. And, uh, you know, 1803, 1804, you've got letters from, you know, uh, James Wilkinson, who was sort of the, the commanding general of the U.S. Army and, you know, there at the takeover and uh, Governor Claiborne uh, talking about how, well, they seem on board. They seem very gung-ho about the United States. Uh, they seem really loyal, whereas, you know, you contrast that with a lot of uh, local 
white francophones, they often were complaining uh, you know, that they weren't getting their full rights and all the rest. So in, in some ways, you know, for those first couple of years, free persons of color maybe seem like real allies uh, of the American government coming in. Uh, and, you know, certainly Claiborne and, you know, the, the War Department allow you to recognize uh, those free black units. And you end up with a lot of protests from uh, white, uh, white Anglo-Americans, but also white Creoles uh, who are not comfortable uh, with with that. So, uh, you know, there is sort of this, this tri-racial order where, you know, certainly Claiborne and Wilkinson seem to understand that, look, we, we can't treat the free persons of color population uh, um, or ignore this group in a way that they sometimes were in other regions. Now, over time, this gets significantly worse for, for free persons of color and slaves in Louisiana. So 1806, you have a black code uh, put in that's significantly uh, stricter than what had been in place under the Spanish. Likewise, when they, they passed the Civil Digest in, in 1808, that uh, you know, has further restrictions on this. So, you know, I mean, on the one hand, it, it is coming into closer alignment with what you see in much of the rest of the United States. On the other hand, you still have, you know, th- this population of free persons of color. They're still recognized. Uh, and so you do have sort of a a simplistic kind of tripartite sort of uh, division in, in, I guess, American officials' minds. Now, it's more complex, obviously, in that you're talking about indigenous peoples. And, and you know, again, sometimes these are tri-racial individuals. Uh, but, you know, it's a racial order that starts to resemble more the rest of the United States the longer it goes on. Uh, and again, some ways this is much more bottom-up than it's just Anglo-Americans pushing it on. Louisianans, right? In a lot of ways, this is uh, white Creoles or, or, or white locals that, you know, from the forefront are, are talking about how they want to continue to be able to import slaves from Africa, uh, even though Congress is telling them they can't. Uh, these are, you know, again, often white Creoles talking about how they're not comfortable uh, with these uh, uh, free persons of color uh, militia companies. Uh, so, yeah, it's one of these things where we sometimes sort of romanticize Creole resistance to Anglo-Americans coming in. But when you look at the federal government, in some ways, the federal government's much more moderate on these issues than uh, the the local population, as the local white population is. Now, you talked about the Indian agent, Dr. John Silby. Tell us about him. Interesting. Yeah, so Sibley's an interesting figure in that he's... Uh, and this is true of a lot of Indian agents of this period and that they're not all, I mean, these are not, you know, sort of uh, early 20th century civil servants, right? I mean, simply somebody that uh, is uh, well-liked by Jefferson, but he's someone who had fled, uh, seems to be coming to Louisiana. And again, a lot of Anglo-Americans are coming to Louisiana for, you know, mercenary reasons, or they're running away for, from something. And, and Sibley's sort of abandoning his family, his wife and children, by all accounts, and coming in. Uh, and he gets this appointment as an Indian agent. He starts operating out of Natchitoches. And, uh, you know, they, they don't hear about the rumors about the abandoning the wife and kids till later. But when Jefferson finally does get word of them, Jefferson, you know, sort of writes back that, well, look, we don't know whose fault it was. Was it his? What is it hers? But Jefferson likes the reports that he's sending back. Uh, and, you know, by all accounts, Sibley is taking the job uh, pretty seriously. Uh, you know, he's, he's, a re- he's a good diplomat. He's good at, you know, getting out of Natchitoches and sending people out of Natchitoches to the West, into that kind of Spanish borderlands area between the United States and Spanish territory, and trying to secure, at a minimum, native neutrality, right? If there ever was a conflict between Spain and the United States, at a minimum, you want the natives there to stay out of it. But even better, could they start coming closer to the United States? And you know, one of the ways you're doing that is through gifts and trade. And this is another, I mean, again, Sibley's not, you know, a, uh, 
you know, a civil servant the way we sometimes imagine them. All these guys usually have a lot of side hustles or, or maybe the, the Indian agency is the side hustle, right? I mean, a lot of his time is spent, you know, trading with the natives for his own benefit. Uh, and, uh, you know, Sibley someone who, you know, again, is, is an excellent source, not just for what's going on uh, in those native borderlands, but he's also someone who gives you a real insight into what's going on in, in Natchitoches. And, uh, and Natchitoches is sort of that key area or, or jumping off point for everything to do, you know, with that, that borderland zone. Uh, and, you know, likewise, I mean, you've got one of these situations where slaves will often flee from Natchitoches in western Louisiana to Spanish territory. Uh, Spanish officials seem to be giving them freedom. Uh, when American officials kind of complain about this, the, the Spanish will often deny it or say these are just sort of officials acting outside their real instructions. But you regularly have this happening, too. And again, uh, Sibley is an excellent source for all that stuff as well. So he's he's a real character. Uh, but. Yeah, you know, it also talks. I mean, or speaks to sort of this this idea of the moving of the frontier. Because by the end of the War of eighteen twelve, you've got a lot of locals in Natchitoches that don't want uh, that Indian agency there anymore. They want it moved further to the west. They don't like visits by Native Americans into Natchitoches anymore. So. You know, Sibley's experience also kind of speaks to this idea, well, okay, the, the moving of that Western frontier, right? That, you know, this this period of greater, I don't know, fluidity or cooperation or whatever you want to talk about in terms of race and these interactions is coming to an end by 1850. Now, you talked about the 1811 slave revolt by Charles um, DeSalon. He was sentenced to death. That was an interesting story. Tell us about that. Yeah, so this is maybe the largest slave revolt in in U.S. history, not in terms of the number of casualties, but in the number of participants, maybe. So it's a very big thing. And uh, this takes place up in the the German coast, so areas that had been settled uh, by uh, Germans uh, just upriver from New Orleans. And... uh, it's it highlights a lot of these issues when you, you talk about uh, white Creole landowners or slave owners fears, right? There's constantly this worry of slave revolts and, and even more so in the aftermath of, of Haitian independence. So and that's something that you regularly see everyone bring up in the Gulf Coast, when they talk about slave revolts, they always bring up the horrors of Saint-Domingue or the horrors of Haiti and, you know, what, what, you know, the, the potential for all this could be. So, uh, and, uh, they successfully take over, uh, plantations and start marching towards the city. Uh, now they're stopped short of the city, uh, local militia organize and, uh, you, know, uh, you also have uh, contingents of you know U.S. Navy and the U.S. Army at New Orleans that then move up. It probably would have been put down just with local militia without the need for U.S. troops. But the fact that those U.S. troops are there in New Orleans, you know, is one of these ways that's demonstrative of uh, how the U.S. can be of help to local white French-speaking landowners, right? That that's a useful backer. Uh, and uh, you know, it's also the case that, you know, it's the federal government under Claiborne that have been pushing for militia reform year after year after year, saying we need more regular practices. We need to find people that aren't showing up for militia practice. And, you know, the well, territorial legislature had not been particularly amenable to any of that. Uh, it's going to be expensive. It's just one more burden for local officials that are going to have to do. They're not interested. But, you know, that slave revolt finally moves them. Uh, you know, now the territorial legislature gets off the dime on this. Uh, so, you know, it, it's another way the federal government sort of, you know, reveals itself or the United States reveals itself to be serious about what they see as security threats. Uh, so uh, it's also interesting that the free persons of color militia units 
volunteer for this too. Now they don't march those units towards the towards the slave revolt. Uh, you know, they, they leave them to defend New Orleans. But you know, it also speaks to you know these racial divisions, right? That there isn't necessarily uh, you, you can't assume there's going to be uh, blanket support for you know uh, slave resistance from that that population of free persons of color. So they're also in some ways demonstrating maybe their loyalty or getting greater buy-in uh, during this too. And in the aftermath of it, once it's put down, you've got these courts that quickly execute ugly judgments and uh, again, cutting off the heads and, and putting them on uh, poles uh, down the Mississippi. Uh, so it, it's, it's very ugly, but after that initial wave, you see the usual kind of friends helping one another out uh, slaves that were caught up in the revolt that are, of particular value or who you have a connection with. Uh, you see people writing to Claiborne, trying to get them an exoneration uh, to let them loose. And so after this initial wave of executions, you then start seeing people being pardoned. Uh, and that's typical too. And it, it's typical the way U.S. governance works there. They, they often will talk about kind of the law being applied blindly and it's going to be by the book. But you know, the political realities are always, well, no, you know, judges are important figures that want their slaves pardoned. They're going to have their slaves pardoned, right? Regardless of whether they were in that revolt or caught up in that revolt or not. So, uh, you know, yeah, I think it's, it's, it's a useful kind of window. I mean, I don't know that the local militia probably, I mean, we're probably capable of putting this down on their own, but, you know, again, it, it makes maybe local white elites look at the, the U.S. government or the federal presence as a, as a useful backstop, certainly. The Cantrell family. Now, this was a, a good example of the mixed legal system. Tell us a little about that family. Yeah, for sure. I mean, uh yeah, Michelle Crentrell uh, is someone who get who uh, is a, a local official in the Acadian Coast, and uh, you know when the Americans come in uh, and they're, they're trying to implement a, a U.S. jury system and, and trying to shift everything to a common law system, and uh, you want local judges uh, that already have status and, and bona fides in their area, their region. They're going to get support, especially in heavily populated regions. So in northern and western Louisiana, you'll see more Anglo-Americans appointed, right? More outsiders coming in and getting appointments. But you see a lot more locals getting appointments in southern and eastern Louisiana. And Cantrell's a local. They know he's popular. He has local support and they, they want him uh, to be a judge. But uh, you know, Cantrell doesn't have much of an understanding of this common law system. And uh, and most of the even getting the texts. Right. I mean, most of the texts dealing with common law are going to be in English. And even if you could read English with some facility, a lot of those texts are, you know, is going to be like me trying to read ancient Greek, right? It's just, it doesn't work. Uh, so, you know, there's a lot of individuals saying, well, look, I don't really want to take this position. And, uh, you know, Cantrell uh, you know, has the support. He's well-liked by Claiborne and he's, he's well-liked you know, by uh, his, his uh, local constituents. And you've got this legal case where Cantrell's son-in-law, um, uh, his name's escaping me. It might be Anselm, but uh, Cantrell's son-in-law is uh, charged with assault or assault and battery, and Cantrell goes ahead and you know gives him the, the guilty verdict and you know sentences him to real fine and a little jail time. And uh, Claiborne loves this, uh, and, and Claiborne writes about it in letters to Jefferson and others, talking about how this demonstrates. Uh, the superiority of the U.S. legal system, how the law is going to be applied without any uh, uh, bias uh, when it comes to you know important figures or their family members or all the rest. And the fact that we have Cantrell sentencing his son-in-law after he committed a crime, how wonderful this is. But 
then a couple weeks later, uh, Claiborne pardons the son-in-law. Uh, so, and he, and he doesn't write effusively about that to Jefferson, right? So, you know, there's on the one hand, sort of this, uh, and again, you know, Claiborne's a, a natural politician, and he wants Jefferson to like him, and you know, he's sort of a natural people pleaser. So, I mean, he, he's always selling himself and the U.S. successes to Jefferson, as, as you'd imagine he would be, but. You know, the reality is, is, is something more complex, right? I mean, the reality is, is often, well, no, we're, we're still going to abide by the same rules, right? That there's still going to be, you know, different rules for different people. And uh, that's one of the ways, you know, I- imperialism works, right? Different rules for different individuals, but that's one of the ways you're getting buy-in also, right? Someone like Cantrell can also then say, look, this system is okay, right? I mean, I'm still getting, you know, my privileges, right? The, you know, the governor's still, you know, letting my son-in-law loose after I obey the, the, the forms. And uh, so, and this, when, when you give students examples like that, they sometimes think it's the most horrible kind of hypocrisy. And, and, uh, and, and I can see that, right? I mean, for, you know, idealistic young people that of course it looks like hypocrisy but that's often the way things work on the ground right and uh and without that hypocrisy maybe u.s governance doesn't work right if you keep cantrell's son-in-law in jail maybe he doesn't want to continue to cooperate uh you know and you know give his name or fill these positions anymore so you know, you need that. And, and same thing with Native American uh, diplomacy and crimes, right? You'll have Claiborne tell Native American tribes after, you know, they're caught murdering a U.S. citizen, whether French speaker or English speaker, that, you know, the U.S. is going to enforce the laws. And, uh, you know, you killed this many people and anyone guilty of it is going to be executed. But then Claiborne will turn around and pardon those individuals or, you know, a number of those individuals. So, uh there's a, you know, again, there's a lot of this sort of, you know, the, the form is more important than the reality, right? That we have to pretend that this is the case. But again, the reality on the ground is always much more complex. But again, if it's not complex, it probably doesn't work, right? American governance probably wouldn't work if you didn't have these, this kind of hypocrisy. Now, in your book, you gave a really interesting description of Louisiana in the 1850s versus Utah. Can you tell the audience briefly about that? Yeah, and that's one of these things where, uh, and I think these comparisons made the book stronger, I hope. I mean, it was when when I was first circulating drafts, I'd have people read it and say, why don't you just put something in the introduction about how uh, this is like America elsewhere? So that's what I did. And uh, not surprisingly, when the, you know, the anonymous readers came back, they said, look, you say you're going to do this in the introduction. You didn't do it. Uh, And, you know, it's sort of me doing, I mean, I'm, I'm uh, that kind of hypocrisy, I'm, I'm guilty of too, right? I always tell my students to do that, but then I, I hadn't done it for my own book in that way. I said I was going to do something I didn't do it. So I went back and, you know, looked at all these other uh, territorial experiences. And Utah is really interesting as a comparison because you're talking about Anglo-Americans there, but in a lot of ways, that's even more foreign than you know French speakers in Louisiana or Spanish speakers in New Mexico and California or you know French speakers in the Illinois country because uh, there you've got Anglo Americans uh, that you know speak a common English language uh, but have a culture that in some ways is much more different than than it is and. You know, and it's one of the reasons why Utah has this very long territorial period, right? Because, uh, you know, for you know, you're, you're talking about a very Protestant United States, and, and you know, uh, Louisiana's territorial period. Again, some Catholics in Maryland and elsewhere, but you know, you know, an overwhelmingly culturally Protestant nation that's very uncomfortable with, uh, you know, a, a Catholic majority, and whether those. Catholic citizens could be good Americans, right? Whether they could be good small R Republicans. Uh, but, you know, even so, pretty fast, right? I mean, you know, Louisiana becomes a state by 1812. Utah's left out for decade after decade after decade. And, you know, again, it, it, it's anti-Mormon prejudice in the same way that, you know, even even more virulent in some ways than, than anti-Catholic prejudice uh, you know, for its period. But also, 
polygamy, right? Which again becomes a, a major issue. So I, I think that's, and again, it's a useful comparison in that Utah, we sometimes get into this game of saying, well, this is Anglo-Americans that don't, you know, are, are somehow fundamentally different from, you know, French speakers. And, and, and the, well, not so much as you might think, right? Again, Utah's territorial experience is significantly more arduous than anything, you know, Spanish speaking or you know, French speaking whites are encountering in those territories. So I, I think, yeah, I mean, Utah's really interesting in, in that way. Now, I want you to tell us about Claiborne and the Yellow Fever. That was a fascinating story. Yeah, so Claiborne has um, just horrible luck with it. And, and, well, it's not even unique to him And that you're talking about Anglo-Americans coming in to the Gulf Coast. And, and again, it's not just New Orleans. Everywhere on the Gulf Coast, this is the case in you know coastal Mississippi and Alabama and Florida, too. But uh, you have these seasonal yellow fever epidemics every summer and early fall. And... For people that had had no exposure to this, it can be incredibly deadly. Uh, so you've got people coming in, uh, and uh, you can look at, uh, uh, briefly in the book, I've, I've got this portion about uh, James Wilkinson and, and the U.S. Army experience, one of these yellow fever epidemics, and it just ravages uh, you know, those units. And uh, Claiborne is, is coming in, and... Uh, his first wife dies uh, in one of these yellow fever epidemics. Uh, and, you know, a uh, young child, the second wife dies in one of these yellow fever epidemics. Uh, so Claiborne had had, you know, and, and he got it himself. His, you know, his private secretary got it too and died, but his private secretary got it too and said Claiborne's on death's door, that he might not last. And Claiborne pulled through, but Claiborne had had, uh, you know, this experience, which... Uh, again, it, it's sort of hard to imagine, right? I mean, you get losing your, your wife and young child and then losing another wife in this experience. And uh, in some ways, yellow fever actually could be good in that, or no, I don't want to say could be good, but had sort of this, this you know, uh, silver lining in that Claiborne, and they don't know it's carried by mosquitoes, right? The, the, the popular view at the time was it was carried by vapors, but they connected that to kind of swamps, right? Standing water and areas like that. And in an urban area, it's going to be that much worse, right? They're going to have that many more people with it. It's going to spread that much more quickly. So uh, Claiborne was convinced, as were many others, that you needed to get out of the city in early summer uh, or you know, summer and early fall. And uh, he made a regular practice of that, and he encouraged other people to do the same, especially Anglo-Americans coming in. He'd tell them not to arrive during that period, because if you just arrive after the journey, you already might be weakened and you, you might have exposure to this. And th the silver lining is that meant he had to go out of the city during those periods. And he'd make these tours, the countryside. And that's one of these key elements. And, and again, New Orleans is so important, of course, right? It's the urban center. It's the political center of the, ter you know, it's the territorial capital. Uh, but uh, it's not where the majority of the population lives in Louisiana in the territorial period. Uh, and uh, when Claiborne has to leave the city, then he's got to go tour these countrysides and, you know, check in with locals and go to different regions. And that's incredibly valuable in terms of FaceTime with local officials. And you know, it's hard to find anyone who's particularly impressed with Claiborne, uh, you know, especially in, say, those first five years of his administration in Louisiana, or even those, you know, those those views from Mars, even those outsiders like Robin are, are not impressed with uh, Claiborne. But he's a pretty good politician and he's good at working people. He's good at being amenable uh, and he wants to be liked, right? Like most politicians, that's really important for him. And, uh, you know, that kind of FaceTime and these kind of tours of the countryside gives, you know, Claiborne a, a greater ability to know, you know, the territory he's supposed to be governing, but he's making these connections. He's seeing who he likes, who he doesn't, who locals seem to like, who they don't. And that serves a, a really valuable role. Uh, and, yeah, it's another one of these areas where even though, you know, the 
the city of New Orleans, the territorial legislature do not want to throw any money at this problem. But you do have, you know, Claiborne and others saying, look, we need to do something about standing water in New Orleans. We need to do something about sanitation here. So often it doesn't go anywhere. But they're aware that, hey, if we could you know, drain some of this water away, you know, we, we might have uh, you know, a less severe yellow fever season every summer and fall. Now, what is the overall message you want the reader to leave with when they finish your book? I want them to, well, personnel matters more than policy. Uh, and, and that's the, the key message, that you know, the policy uh, can be ignored, subverted, compromised in order to make something work. So, and, and I'm tr- and that's what I'm trying to do. I'm trying, I mean, we're now on our, our fourth generation of historians doing kind of history from below. And there's been a tremendous amount of work, good work done on that. And it, it, but it has created a lot of sort of little lost worlds that are interesting. But I don't know that it's necessarily brought all that many insights into how politics work. And I think you need to do it from the middle, right? I mean, I, by looking at local elites, people that are exercising power, right? Those kind of guys in the middle, uh, the people who have to translate the policy to make it work on the ground. You know, that's sort of where the rubber meets the road. I think, you know, when you're looking at political processes, I think it's that implementing population that's the key population, Right. Because Congress and, you know, the administration in Washington will sign the bill or craft the policy and think they're done. Well, no, it's not done if it's not working on the ground. Uh, And to make it work on the ground, it often has to be altered in significant ways. So, you know, when you know, we sometimes talk about Americanization. And again, there's a lot of truth to that as a, a phrase. But, you know, this is not Americanization coming on from high. It's compromised all over the place. So. In a lot of ways, when you look at territorial history, I, I'm trying to read it from kind of a colonial history perspective, right? That, you know, this idea that, well, no, there's a lot of compromises on the ground, that these categories are never as discreet as we think they are. And when you look at how it's working, uh, you know, it, it's the personnel that make it work or don't make it work, but they rarely make it work by enforcing the policy strictly. Uh, you know, it, it's got to meet the local population where they are at uh, or bring them at least part of the way along. Uh, I'd, also, yeah, I'd also like you to take the message from the book that you should buy more copies. But otherwise, I, <laughs> the main message is the personnel matters more than policy. Well, I've taken up enough of your time. Can you tell us what is the next project you'll be working on? Well, I've got kind of a, a personal project. My great grandfather... Uh, uh, well, my, my great grandfather, I think, pretty clearly did murder somebody. He was he was moving uh, somebody's goats off of his land, or what he thought was his land, but what the other person thought he at least. And uh, when they came out to stop him, uh, he and a, a special Texas Ranger ended up shooting someone, and uh, that then went to a murder trial. Uh, that went went to the Texas Supreme Court, uh, and uh, he got another trial. Uh, he had a, a former governor of Texas, Dan Moody, representing him. So, uh, you know, I, I'm hoping this will, I mean, I think it's, it has sort of these elements that, it, it, you know, it's a murder, it's Texas Ranger stuff. I think it, it should, you know, get published. And, I'm, and I've, I've got a, a, a built-in cachet of, of letters. I've got two boxes of letters I'm still going through from, from him. So I'm, I'm excited about it. I, I think it should be, I, I, think, I think it's something people are going to want to read. Well, we're going to be looking forward to that project. Thank you so much for being on the podcast. Oh, thank you so much. It was a lot of fun.